We are busy continuing through the study of Colossae and Paul is sitting in a jail and while he's sitting in jail Epaphras comes to him and he gives him this account of this church in Colossae. He says there is a church there. Uh, we know that Paul wasn't there himself. He hasn't visited them. He talks to them through this letter. He didn't establish the church. It was Epaphras and Philip who went there and started to preach the gospel of God. Nothing can stop God when He moves. Nothing. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you hear what I'm saying? And he gives him this great account about them. And Paul goes on in the first part of this letter and he thanked God for them. He thanked God for their faith. And this is what we should thank God for what's inside of us. The faith of God. And he gives them instruction. He prays for them. He says, Lord, give them wisdom. Give them knowledge. But there's a problem in this church. As it is lying there in the eastern influence comes washing through the church there is Gnosticism that's happening in the church these people who say that they know more than the every other person you see it's not only the word of God it is revelational knowledge it is knowing more than any other person knows and some people who believe they can see into the spiritual world or get visitation from angels who gives them this knowledge which they say it's not in the Word of God. And by the way, I've now flicked to our day. It happens in our day now where people can stand in front of scores of people and they go, What is that, Lord? Oh, yeah, 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 Lord, uh, I got it. And, and you know, it might be funny if it wasn't so serious. There's a problem in the church of Colossae because there's Gnosticism that came into the church. This wonderful work of God that started happening there, the gospel being preached and souls being saved, Satan's not going to be happy with that. What's he going to do? He's going to try to come in and destroy it. It happens with every single church. It will happen with this church. You know, he will see there's a work starting. And I'll tell you what, if we start seeing people coming here, and especially for people who come here who for the first time accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, he's going to be mad about it. Let's not kid ourselves. Let's be serious about this. If you, if you in your life is going to decide to follow Christ with every single thing in your life, do you think it's going to be a nice moonlit walk at night? No, there's going to be obstacles in your way. So there's obstacles in the way of this church. Gnosticism started coming in. And Paul addresses that with this letter. And in fact, he is so clever in how he addresses this. He uses words that they use. But instead of using their description of these words, he applies the word of God to these words that they use. And we're going to start seeing it this morning. I want to focus on one verse quickly, and that's Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He says, He is the image of the invisible God. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He writes this to them in this letter. 
You see, one of the first attacks these Gnosticists, when they come in, is to say that Jesus Christ was not a man on the earth. It wasn't God with us. Because everything in heaven is holy, and in holiness there is no evil, but everything that's matter, that's on the earth, that's evil. And God will not come into evil. That's what they say. And they build the whole theology around it. And started influencing the church, coming to the church, and start spreading that nonsense. You say, how can they believe that? Well, hold on to your seats, because there's a lot of things that people believe today that's not according to the Word of God. They had a different mindset about creation. How did all of this stuff come together? Well, they will tell you it was a, a molecule of evil that begot more molecules of evil, that begot more molecules of evil, and they evolved out of evil. And evil, I, I don't know where I want to go, but it's, it's, it's like all this evil now is evolved into what we said today. Now we have schools now propagating to our children that we all evolved from what? From monkeys. How ridiculous is that? And we say it is ridiculous, but you know what? The children are still learning these things in the schools. Isn't it, isn't it strange that people do that? So he's now addressing this. He says to them, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You see, the word image there has got two meanings in it. It means the likeness. That means if you take a coin, and if you've seen the coin, the face on the coin is the likeness. It's the image of the emperor normally. And it's the same today. If you see some coins of some countries, they will put the face or the head of the president on there. And that is the likeness. In John chapter 14 verse 8, Philip came to him and he said to him, show us the Father. And he said to him, he said, Philip, the Lord show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you such a long time and yet you have not known me, Philip? And this is a really interesting question he asked him. I want to ask that same question to Christians sitting in the church who profess that they are Christians for more than 10 years and 20 or maybe 5 or 2 or 3. I want to ask you the same question this morning. Do you know Jesus? Fair question, isn't it? Philip came to him and he says to him, I've been with you all this time and you don't know me. Jesus is with us. Every Sunday you come here and hopefully you open up your Bible and I ask you this morning, do you know Him? You ought to know Him. He asked the same question. He says, I've been with you and you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And how do you say, show us the Father? In other words, if He says He is the image of the invisible, it means He is the image of the Father. He's like that stamp on that coin when you see that that's in the likeness of the Father. Now I want you to understand one thing. When He talks about likeness, we think in our minds, going back to Genesis chapter 127, where we were formed in the likeness of the Father. This is not the same kind of likeness. Because God is Spirit. And he existed. It's not as if he was be created. And then he started existing. Jesus Christ existed eternal past, present, eternal future. He always was there. It's not as if he was all of a sudden born like you and me. And then he started uh, be. 
The second understanding of that word is manifestation. If he says he is the image, it is in the likeness and the manifestation. It is with a sense that God is fully revealed in Jesus. Have you heard what I say? God is fully revealed in Jesus when he was on the face of the earth. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 16, he says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Paul writes this down to Timothy. He says, God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed in all the world, and received up into glory. That is a fantastic scripture verse. You see it underline that in your Bible. If anybody asks you about Jesus Christ, you quote to them that verse. Let me read it again for you. Because I don't want it just to be flippant past. Let me read it again. Listen to what he says. He says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. There ain't no controversy about this in heavens. Or with Paul. Or with the apostles. Or with any of the disciples. And so should be none with you. But let me tell you, there is certain churches where there's a controversy about this topic right now. Listen, he says, God was manifested in the flesh. Amen. How was he manifested in the flesh? The angel came to a virgin and said, You will bore a son. His name will be Jesus. And he will take away the sin of this world. And what happened? It happened. There is an account for that. And he says, Justified in the Spirit. Seen by angels. Preached among the nations. Believed on in the world and received up into glory. He was manifested. That's what it means when he talks about the image. You see, Paul writes to this church in this letter, and the Gnosticists are there, and he goes straight into their faces with this, this uh, statement right there. When he says that he is the image of the invisible. Have you seen the invisible? They haven't seen the invisible, but this is the image. He came from the invisible and became in an appearance. That is powerful. He didn't start to take them on and tell them how wrong they are. No, he gives them the true facts. I've heard some, somebody sometime told me, if you go and work as a teller in the bank back in the day, when there were a lot of cash, you know what they do? They give you the real cash to count. And you count that money and you feel it on your fingers. The real money. And they keep you on counting that real money. And then one day they put fake money in there. And guess what happens? While you are counting the real money, you come over the fake money and you all of a sudden you feel it. You feel it. You go, oh, this is off. That's not right. You pick it out. You check it out and what is it? It's fake money. They don't give you all of the fake money and you count all of the fake money and then they put a real one in there. That's not how they do it. And this is the same thing that Paul does. He gives us the truth. He says he is the image of the invisible God. You sit there today and you say, how does that affect me in 2018? Well, friends, so much. The whole world is doing what they were doing in, in Colossae. The whole world is full of Gnosticism these days. Listen, let me tell you, the seams of the church are so rotten at the seams at the bottom, it's going to fall out through all of the Gnosticism that's putting a weight on this church. We should stand there with the truth like Paul did. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. 
You see, the false teachers in Colossae would not deny the importance of Jesus. You need to listen to what I'm saying here this morning, because it happens in our day. You go and talk to a Muslim this morning, and he'd accept that Jesus Christ is a prophet. They don't deny him. They don't say, no, we don't believe in that Jesus. No, they, they accept him. You go to the Jehovah Witnesses and they say, yes, we believe in Jesus Christ. But he was only an angel. That's what they say. And how many followers do they have? If they come together, how many followers do they have? They have a lot of followers. They have people with high intelligence following that nonsense. And so right through, you talk to the Mormons, they tell you something about Jesus. You go to the Buddhists this morning, and you know what they say? Jesus is one of the gods, one of their many gods. And it is rife in our day and age. And friends, you watch those movies that you watch from Hollywood, and it gives you the same message. Jesus is only one of the strong superpowers in the world. So don't just point finger to Colossae. You see, they dethroned Jesus by giving Him prominence, but not preeminence. That's how they do it. Oh no, Jesus Christ, yes! He's, he's a prominent man. Oh yes, He was a Jew who hung on a tree, and He died. Oh yes, He died for His followers. That is only giving Him prominence. And it's the only place that they will give Him but not preeminence. So what's the difference between prominence and preeminence? What is the difference? First of all, prominence is being important, famous and noticeable. There's a lot of prominent people in the world, isn't there? They are important. People talk and write and write books about them. Newspapers, you open up, there they are. Prominent. They're noticeable and famous. This is what people want to put Jesus in. Oh, he's a famous, prominent man. But the difference between prominence and preeminence is that preeminence surpasses all others in superiority. Have you seen the, have you seen the difference? Let, let me ask you, how vast is the gap between those two words? Massive! It is as wide as an ocean and bigger. Prominence, preeminence. They dethrone Jesus Christ these days and they make Him nothing. They're just making Him a superstar. I, I wonder if you've seen this before. Who of you have seen this? Anyone? Just put up your hand. I have. Yeah, yeah you've seen it. This is, this is making Jesus what? Prominent. Because what are they doing? What you see in the, in the picture there is Jesus sitting in the middle of, ooh, that's Thor... I don't even know who that guy is. Who's that? Iron Man. And that is our man hanging from the ceiling. That's Spider-Man. And is, is that Captain America? And this is the big Hulk. And him sitting in the middle and he's saying, that's how I save the world. In other words, hey guys, you know what? I'm one of those superstars who can just sit amongst you. Hey Thor, you know, I'm just as good as you. Hey Spider-Man, I didn't need to have a spider to bite me. Become a spider. Man, I'm just cool as you dudes. I'm just going to hang out here with this posse. That's making him prominent. But you see, friends, we are sitting here today, and it, this message is so serious, is that our children growing up is seeing Jesus like that. 
They are seeing Jesus like that. He's just a superstar. You get movies coming out, Jesus Christ Superstar. That's blasphemous, and those people who write it and act in it, if they do not repent of their sins, will stand before the white throne of God and repent of every single sin they've done. Why? Because they, they degraded Jesus Christ. Let me just go back and show you the two words. Prominence, being important, famous, and noticeable, versus preeminence, surpassing all others, superiority. Superiority. But you see... Paul, who writes this letter to, Cor to Col Colossians, he, he actually acted this out. This is not new, you know, having all of these things in our day. It happened in Paul's day. He, one day he was walking through Athens in Greece. He was walking through Athens. And as he walked through Athens, he saw all of these massive statues there of Zeus, the god Zeus, of Thor, the god Thor. There was a massive statue there back in the day. And he walks through, very impressive, walks through there. And he looks at these things. Man, it is fantastic. I've been to Rome last year and I walked through the ruins there. It is absolutely impressive. You see some of those, those pillars, this app, man. I feel like a small ant against it. You know, we think in the 21st century we are biggest. And, no, man, they were big, massive. And I walked in, and I was impressed by the fallen stuff there. I could just envision how Paul walks through the city and all of these impressive statues to their gods. To their gods. We pick it up in Acts chapter 17, 23. He says, For now he stands in front of all of them in the Apagras. It is a, it's an amphitheater where people sit around. They didn't have mics there. It was built so that you can speak. And they fill it up with who? With Gnostics. It's like uh, um, people, you know, uh, what's the word now? It just slipped my mind now. Philosophers. There's all of these clever philosophers sitting there. And Paul walks in right in the middle of them. After he's walked through the city. And there he says these words to them in Acts 17, 23. He says, For as I passed by and saw the things you worship. I wonder if Paul walks through the world today. I wonder if he drives through Melbourne today and get everybody together in the MCG. How many people can he take? 110, 110. Let's say we fill it up. And he walks right in the middle of that stage there and he says the same words to them. As I passed through Melbourne and saw the things you worship, what will he say? You see, friends, we worship every other thing but Jesus Christ these days. Why? Because we've made Him prominent and not preeminent. The same problem that in their day. Here He's in Athens. Now, I like this. He says, I also found an altar with the inscription, To the Unknown God. That could have been anybody else. I've heard some person preaching and say it was about God and Jesus, but he didn't say it. it was just an unknown God. You see, what they thought back in those days, they had all their gods which they worshipped, but they were so worried they're going to miss one God. And out of the eons of time, this God is going to be so angry with them that he's going to come past Thor, come past Mercury, come past all of these and strike them because they've missed and worse not worshipped Him. Is that the God we serve? No. But He used that cleverly again. He says, I've seen you have this inscription on an unknown God. Not knowing then whom you worship, 
I make him known to you. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I love that. Let me tell you the God you need to worship. I'll make him known to you. The God who made the world and all things in it. Gnosticism. They had a problem with creation. God is holy. We are evil. He comes, he says, this God made the whole world and everything in it. Now, when I read the account of creation, what did God say? He made everything and he saw that it was good. It was good, not evil. Whoops, that struck them right in their face. You see, these things, we see it out of the Western world, we need to understand in their day. Since he is Lord of heaven, see the words he uses. He's Lord of heaven and of earth. That goes right against the Gnosticists. Does not dwell in temples made by hand, nor is served with men's hand as though he needed anything, since he gives life and breath to all things and to all. Friends, I can preach a whole sermon about that. I love that verse. But I need to get into Colossae. He uses exactly the same argument in the letter to Colossa. Let me show you. Look at verse 13. We first see the preeminence of Christ as the Savior. Remember preeminence He surpasses everybody in superiority. Let me explain it to you this way. If you look at people in this world today, and you look, let's try to find the strongest man on the earth. How many strong men are there? There are lots. But you know what? There will always be a stronger man. You can go up on a stage and you can flex your muscles and go, Another guy comes up and says, turn, stand aside, stand aside. Whoa, and everybody goes, wow, that guy is bigger and better. Now give him something to pick up. He picks it up, a massive ball. I'm the strongest. Another guy comes and picks a bigger one up. But let me explain to you this. On God's level, there ain't nobody else. It's him and him alone. There's nobody there. That's what preeminence means. And this is what he talks now. Look, he writes in verse 13. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. In that one statement, he gives us four things which shows Jesus Christ as preeminent as the Savior. What is it? First of all, He delivered us. Look at that. That means He rescued us from danger. Can any one of these other gods do that? None. He had to be preeminent to do that. He had to outstrip every authority to be able to do that. You need to understand the child of God. You who sit here today need to understand this and live by this. He is God preeminent who saved you from danger. He delivered you this morning. From what? He says it right there. From the domain of darkness. I want you to understand something when Paul writes here. There ain't two kingdoms here. I've heard some people say the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. That is not right. Scriptural, that is not right. There is only one kingdom, and the rest are domains. Which carries the more authority? You tell me. The kingdom or the domain? 
The kingdom. Why? Because a kingdom has got a king. And who's the king of this kingdom? God is. He said, listen, he delivered us from the domain of darkness. This is the domain of Satan. And he transferred us into the kingdom. That means he deported us. I've explained it last week, but I'll do it a little bit slower today. So what happened back in the day? If there's one king who rules a kingdom, and another king wars against him, and he overthrows the king, you know what happens? They take the people and they deport them back to their country. This happened in the Old Testament. You remember Daniel? Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? This happened to them. Now, this is so wonderful. He says, you all who sit here today in this room who listens to my voice, you were all part of that domain of darkness. Whether you chose it or not, you were born into that. And He came and delivered you. He rescued you from that domain. And what did He do? He deported you. That's one deportation you want to be part of. Believe me. He deported you way to into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You need to understand that you no longer live in this domain of darkness. You say, oh, wait a minute, I'm still in this world. Yes, Jesus said that. He said you are in the world, but not of the world. So in other words, if the world wants you to conduct in sin, you can say no. But you still obey the emperor. This is again Daniel who showed that to us. Not only that, He gave us redemption. You know what it means? It means to be released as a prisoner by the payment of a ransom. What was that ransom paid? His death. He paid for us. He delivered us. Did any one of these other gods do that? No, they believe it's evil. Who would want to do all of that stuff for evil matter? The evil matter that you are. And the forgiveness of sin. That means to cancel debt. You know what that forgiveness of sin is? That's every single hate sin you do. It's every single sin that you conduct with your mouth. Do you know that you can conduct sin with your mouth? It is every hidden sin. Every hidden sin. It's every sin that every person can see. He gave you forgiveness and He's the only one who can do that. That makes Him... It takes a really super power to be able to do that, isn't it? This is why He's the preeminent Christ. Not prominent, preeminent. Secondly, we see His preeminence as the Creator. The Creator. Look at this here. He says in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is the before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Listen again. The problem is these Gnostics, and he's addressing that. Now he's telling them he existed before creation even started. That's what he starts to do. Verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If he's the image of the invisible God, he had to be there before creation. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, he says, Who being the shining splendor of His glory and the express image of His essence. You know what essence means? It means His substance. Jesus Christ was that image, so He had to be there before creation. John 1 8, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. 
Do you understand the Jesus that you are served? I hope you are learning more about Him right now in this sermon. He was there before creation. He existed before. So He goes against His Gnosticists to say He wasn't there. He, was, he, he couldn't have been God with us. Yes, He was. Secondly, He created all things. Who created this whole world? Jesus did. He said, wow. It's true. He did. Look at verse uh, 16. He says, for by Him all things were created. John 1.3 All things came into being through Him and without Him not even one thing came into being that has come into being. Yeah, you say, but wait a minute, am I? Are you created by Jesus Christ? No, you were procreated. By whom? By Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve is our great, 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 great grandfather. So we all are family, aren't we? We all come from the same line. You say, whoa, wait a minute, there's different cultures, different people, different races and so on. Yes, we all still came from Adam. I don't know who taught you something else, but that is a lie. The truth is, we are all from the same Father. He created us all. He created everything that you see around us. And that goes right against what they say. They say, well, he couldn't have done it. Why? Because he's God, he's holy, and everything matter is evolved out of a gooey evil. How dumb can it be that people believe that? And yet they do. In heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, and also whether it's dominions, rulers, authorities. Let me ask you this question. Did he create Satan? Yes, he did. So who's got the power, the creator or the created being? The creator. So why is it so that people give Satan so much power? Above God. I saw once, and I, I was looking for it, I should have found it. I saw once this, this uh, picture which was drawn up of, of Jesus sitting this side of a chessboard and Satan sitting on the other side. Have you seen that? You know what it is, friends? It's blasphemy. I wouldn't even send that on to another one person. You know why? Because they make Jesus prominent, not preeminent. He's not playing chess with you, with your soul. No, no. Listen, everything Satan does needs to get permission from him. So if you go into a war, there, there's no war. Look, he's got no chance, Satan. And it's just true because he created all things. Not only that, all things exist for him. Look at verse 15. He says, again, he says, all things were created through him and for him. All things through him and for him. And this strikes at the heart of the philosophers. Why? Because the Greek philosophers taught that everything needs primary, primary cause. That is a plan. Everything needs instrumental cause, that's power, and everything find a final cause, which is a purpose. So this is what they teach actually in the schools today. You've got to have a plan, you have to have the power to conduct the plan, and then you have a purpose. And you know what he's telling them? With these few words there through him, he created through him and for him. He's telling them that he planned creation, that's Jesus Christ. He produced creation, that's Him making creation, and He did it for His own pleasure. He did everything to serve Him. So let me ask you this morning, who, why are you created this morning? 
for one reason only, and that's to serve Him. He allowed you to live, to breathe, to have a heartbeat to serve Him. And do you think mankind want to serve Him? I don't think so. See how cleverly He addresses these Gnosticists? And then finally in this part, He holds everything together. And I personally get so much exciting out of this. He says it right there in verse 17. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Oh, but you know what? There's a comet coming and it's going to hit the earth and it's going to wipe us all out. Gone. Kaput. Oh, there's a tsunami coming and they write in the papers and well, it's going to, the whole world. You know what, friends? Why are you fretting about it if Jesus Christ holds everything together? Again, if you, if you allow all of these things to influence your mindset, you are making yourself, Jesus, prominent and not preeminent. You see, I fly a lot around. I get onto airplanes and somebody asked me the other day, aren't you afraid to get on an airplane? Especially once it starts doing this and there's a few potholes in the air. And you know what, friends? We are all human beings. We are getting afraid of something. But let not fear rule your life. Because why? He holds everything. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Ooh, I fret so much about it. Just do this. And the line, the scripture verse. Pray about it. You remember we are building a prayer? Tomorrow morning when you wake up, add one line to your prayer, will you? Thank the Lord Jesus Christ that He upholds everything. That's how you start your prayer. Stand up and say, first of all, good morning, Lord. Thank you, Father. And now you say, Father, I thank you that Jesus holds everything. So in other words, every single thing that I do today, I'm not talking foolish things though, boy. Every single thing I do today, He will uphold. He knows about me. Nothing will happen to you without His permission as a child of God. Nothing. Will that help you with your fear? It should. He holds everything. Upholds everything. John chapter 1 verse 3. All things came into being through Him and without Him not even one thing came into being that has come into being. Some people ask, what came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> have you ever answered that you need a chicken to lay an egg but you need an egg to make a chicken so what came first well it's so easy the chicken came first because God created the chicken duh isn't that right he made every single thing and how wonderful is it before we step off here I just want to quickly uh, I didn't elaborate on this I just want to do it now the firstborn of all creation you see, there's some teaching out there who says, ah, you see, the day when Jesus Christ was born, He became the created Son of God. That's the day He became it. No, 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 friends. He was that all along. So what does it mean? Was He the firstborn? The Jehovah Witnesses love this little piece in your Bible. Let me explain it to you. In the day, the firstborn had the power of the inheritance. This is what he's writing there. It's not because Jesus was born first. Because before Jesus, how many people were born? Lots. Abraham, David. 
He wasn't the first born in the physical sense. What he was writing down to these people there in Colossae and to for the Gnosticists to hear is this, the firstborn of all creation. In other words, as an inheritant, in the inheritance of God, he carries all power. That's why those words are there. The firstborn not only controlled the family, but they had power of authority. Right, the third way that he addresses preeminence is he's preeminent in the church. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body. Is that true? He's the head of this church as well. I'm not. I'm just a voice piece here. I can move on tomorrow. Somebody else comes in. God controls still. Yes? He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent all-powerful. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on the earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. You see, He's the head of the body who controls everything from the head. It actually means like the, 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 when, when a, a river runs, the head of the river, out of Him comes everything. He is the beginning. Everything might be preeminent. For in Him is the fullness of God. And remember, he writes this to Gnostics who don't believe this. They can't believe that a holy God can, through the Holy Spirit, come inside of us. You're evil, man. Haven't you noticed? Fullness here comes from the word pleroma. And this is one of those words that he uses that they used. They used this word pleroma the Gnosticist. But then he throws it into the scripture verse and he says it means to express some total of divine power and attributes. So in Jesus was the fullness of God. The whole fullness of God was in Jesus while he was on this earth. While he was a man like you and me. Can you imagine that? I don't think so. I don't think we with our small brains can imagine what he writes down there. That the whole fullness of, G- of God was in Jesus and God was pleased to dwell in him. That through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on the earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, not only to the church, but to our lives. I want you to look at this now. He addresses them in creation. He showed the power of Jesus Christ to take us out of the domain into the kingdom of the Son. He came into the church. He's the preeminent one in the church. And now He comes down to your and my life, to the personally. He says, and you, He makes this personal now, who once were alienated and hostile in mind. In mind. You see, when you get born again, what happens? You get a changing of your mind. Your mind changes about the things you do. He says you were alienated. It means you were away from God. And now, he says he can reconcile you in his body of the flesh of his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above all reproach before him. Uh, You know, I ask this question, can all the saints put up their hands? Who's the saints? It's us. Why? Because we were born into a sinful nature into this world. We were born in sin. And then what happened? 
He came and He reconciled us to His body. And what did He do through that? He cancelled our debt of sin. He saved our souls. All He, not us. And at that point, what did He do? He restored you back to that holiness. The wholeness. He restores you back. You say, but you know what? I still do a lot of things which I, I, I'm not proud of. And that's fine. He understands. But he, He's still changing you into the image of His Son day by day. For some people it happens like that. But you see, see, we will be glorified when He comes and to take us unto Him. No other God can do that. None. He's the only one. And to present us holy and blameless above reproach before Him. So as we stand before the beamer seed of Christ, what will we stand there? Washed by the blood of the Lamb, saved through Him. Now, let me end with this word here, because I hear so many different versions of this. It says in verse 23, if, everybody say if. Now that means you do this, if you do this, you'll get that, isn't it? But if you do not do this, you won't get that. That's what the English meaning of the word is, isn't it? So there's a lot of people who teach now through this passage now that you can lose your salvation. They teach that. They say, look, look at it right there. He says, blameless above reproach and before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope, the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in the creation under the earth, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now the question is, is it possible for a believer to lose his salvation? I want to say no, it's not. It is not. That's not what that verse teaches. We read it out of our Western understanding. Not how Paul has actually said it to them. The if clause does not suggest doubt or lay down a condition by which we should keep our salvation. Otherwise, we come straight back under the law. This becomes law number one. If you continue in the faith, guess what will happen? You'll be saved. There's no ifs with God when He saved you. He saved you only on one merit, on His own merit. I know there's people who read this and they go, if. Well, it says it right there, if. Paul was saying, if you are truly saved and built on the solid foundation, Jesus Christ, then you will continue in the faith. That's what he's saying there. You will continue in the faith. If indeed you will continue in that faith. That's what it says there. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope. Now that you know that He brought you in through His body. It's not a losing of salvation. That's not what that verse teaches there. If you continue... You've heard the gospel, you've trusted Jesus, and He saved you. And you know what? He will keep you. The Bible says there's, there's a verse, who can take you out of His hand? You can't take yourself out. I know, I know there's a lot of people who say, oh, but you don't know about this one person, you know, he served, and then all of a sudden, one day, he just turned his back on God and he walked away. Well, you want to now tell me that you base your whole uh, theology around people who turn away? My question is, if that person is saved, if they were truly saved, and they walk away, they won't keep walking away. They will come back. God will get them back. How will He get them back? Well, He will punish them until they come back. You say, wow, is that true? Yes, it's true. It's in the Bible. 
things will go wrong in their life until they come to their knees. I've heard of such a, a testimony where a man fell on his knees and he says, you know what, I served the Lord all my years. I've turned my back on Him, but I just can't stay out anymore. I've, I've lost everything and he turned to Christ. He, he recommitted, he, he turned to Christ. You say, but what about this one person? He was so on fire, he came to church and then all of a sudden he went back. I give you the parable of the sowing seed of the sower. Some people come to church and the seed fell amongst the thorns or on the hard ground. They get excited about it, but never, never, never do they come to Christ and submit to the cross. Never. They just follow. They are just a lot people. You know Abraham called by God, sent by God, and you know Lot. Lot just followed. God don't, God's not interested in followers. You know what followers do? Followers follow and then they walk away. The church is full of those. But it doesn't change the doctrine of God. It doesn't change now and say, Oh, you know what? I've got to be so fearful. How in the world can you live a Christian life like that? I've heard people, they teach people, they say, Oh, you have to be really, hold on to everything. You know, if you continue, oh, you've got to continue in the faith. How do I know what I'm going to do a week from now? Silly things I do and then turn away from the faith? How fearful must I as a child of God live to know that maybe in a month, maybe in a year from now, I might lose my faith and not go to heaven? No, no, friends. He settled it. Not on your account. He settled it on whose account? On His account. And He doesn't make mistakes. He does not make mistakes. God do not make mistakes. You say, oh, are you one of those preachers, once safe, always safe? I say, yes, I am. But, but let me qualify for you. If God saves you, you are saved. Not your testimony of you are saved. You say, but how would you know? I'll tell you how you would know. You will see the fruit of salvation in a person's life. It's there. It's evident. It's there. Friends, he does not make a mistake. All my years, and I'm going now to the best part of preaching this word now for 25 years, I've seen people, I've seen people under the fear of falling away because they read if wrong. They don't understand it how Paul has put it. Friend, let me tell you, God, if you are God's child and you are white, blood-washed child of God and you turn and you become naughty and you walk away from Him, He will get you back. But if you are sitting in and you're just a lot follower, you will turn your back on this church just like that and you'll walk away from God, not from the church. And you will continue. And I've seen this with my own eyes. People who come so close to the cross. I've seen it with these two eyes. They came so, they tasted the glory of heaven, but they never committed to the cross. They never accepted. They never heard that call. You know what? I see their lives today. It is a disaster. But don't throw them at me and say now, oh, you see, that's, that's an example. No, no. We find our examples out of the Word of God. Out of the Word of God. David, a man after God's own heart, committed sin. God could have said, yeah, that's right. He could have turned away from God. But you know what happened? A man came to me and says, you are that man! And the conviction of the Holy Spirit through that prophet came to him. And he, he started writing. He says, oh, Richard. He, he says, you know, Lord, don't take your spirit away from me. Don't take it away. You see, this is what they do, these Gnostics. They come into the church 
They give a lot of nonsense. They sound clever. They throw words around. They know the Bible better than you know the Bible. And then they start confusing you with these things. And they go, oh, but you have to work really hard. You have to work hard as a child of God. It's not, oh, you've got to do it. If you miss one church service, one church service, man, you're in trouble. And so they get people to come to all of their services. And you know what I see? I see people who work and they're tired and everything. What? Just to please mankind, not God. Let's say it as it is. I absolutely, in all of the, and, and look friends, I've checked this up. I won't stand here in front and you are by all, I mean, I, I preach the word. You can disagree with me. I'm just a man. I, I don't know the full knowledge of God here. But what I've checked up out of this and the commentaries of good, uh, solid Christian teachers that I've seen, none of them see this if as losing your salvation. None of them. But I've heard people preaching this. Now let me finish with that. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting with hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in the creation and the heaven. He says, you've heard this gospel, Paul says, and he saved you. In other words, we are not saved by continuing in the faith, but we continue in the faith and thus prove that we are saved. You've heard what I say, we continue in this faith, and this is the proof that we are saved. Those who did not continue in the faith and walked away from God is the proof that they were not saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word this morning. You are a wonderful God, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Father, I thank you this morning that we can come to your word and find direction out of your word. Father, your word makes us free. We are not under the bondage of, of sin for a starter, and then we are not under the bondage of the law. We are under Christ, and through Him we are under the law in His freedom. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Everybody say, Amen.